Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the New Testament, Paul's epistle, a letter to the Colossians. We taught the first chapter in two lessons, or last Sunday evening lessons, one week before and one last week, last week and the week before that. The first chapter, we divided it into two sections, and we taught it. I'm not going to give you any particular division of this second chapter. We'll study the second chapter tonight. As I said before, I've often uh, wanted a preacher to get up and just take a passage of Scripture and expound that uh, passage of Scripture so I would know what's there. Give an exposition of it and try to teach me what was found in that particular uh, chapter or part of a chapter or whatever. And that's what we'll try to do. And we take it verse by verse, Colossians chapter 2, and we'll probably have time to take the whole chapter, which is uh, 23 verses, but we'll just take it verse by verse and try to expound it for you. Now then, let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. There were evidently a, a number of people that had not known Paul personally, and yet he, had, he knew the church that he was writing to as a group, but not as every individual. His devotion to them was that he had great conflict. In other words, he didn't mind putting up with sufferings and trouble and trials uh, and even persecutions, as long as it would do some other members of the family of God some good, he was willing to suffer that he might be able to minister. In fact, if you look back at the last verse of the previous chapter, just glance up at verse 29, and it's connected with this verse, might be a better place for the division of some other place than right where it's made in the chapter, because he said in verse 29, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now connect that with the verse we just read. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you. See? So his striving and preaching the gospel to them, his desire to become a minister to them, and I'm sure that he had great conflict would indicate also a prayer life for them, that he prayed for them. That he worked, worked fervently and devotedly. He labored. He says, labor, I labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So Paul was willing to uh, be deeply devoted to his service to, to these people so that he could preach the gospel to them. In verse 2 he says, that their hearts might be comforted. Now his desire is that they would be comforted being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. You know, that's a whole mouthful, you put it. And there's a whole lot of teaching there in this verse. Now, let's look at it and we'll try to analyze it a little bit. First of all, he says, he, in verse 1, he was striving for them and, and concerned about their welfare. Now, in verse 2, he says that their hearts might be comforted. First of all, he wished them comfort. And he knew that the basis of this comfort would be, and keep your eyes on the Scripture, because all of this Scripture teaches itself if we'll let it. 
It says this comfort then being knit together in love. They couldn't be in very much comfort and peace and unity and enjoying the blessings of God if they were not knit together in love. You know, the word knit together in love has to do, we might uh, try to illustrate it as you would mortise a rafter into a, a joint or beams mortised together. Uh, tenons and, uh, and joints that are mortised together so that they join and fit tightly. Maybe, maybe even glued together. Like when you make a, a drawer, you have the dovetail corners sometimes to put them together. And then you put glue in there. And boy, they're tied back and forth and they're woven together one to the other so that they just really become one piece. And so these people were knit together in that way. Wouldn't it be great if we were so joined together that we'd become an intricate part of the other? So that one could not tell one of us from the other because we're so closely knit together in the things of God. And here it's uh, talking about, first of all, in love. Now, not only in love, but I'll let it down as we progress. And let the scripture just flow out and develop itself in your mind. So, knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. In other words, all the riches of the understanding of God's Word so that it brings about a full assurance, full assurance of salvation, understanding the gospel of Christ, understanding spiritual things and eternal things, understanding the Word of God. You know, God must open our understanding that we understand the Scriptures. If you'll remember Jesus, after the resurrection, He... Uh, presented himself to the disciples, and the Bible says, then he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scripture. He began at Moses and all the prophets and in the Psalms and expounded to them the things concerning himself. And all of that exposition of the things of the prophets, all the Old Testament concerning himself, yet until he opened their understanding, they could not understand it. Now then, we need spiritual understanding. You know, the Bible says, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And he says that they are spiritually discerned. The things of God have to be spiritually discerned or understood. And so you need God's Holy Spirit to open your mind to understand spiritual things. All right, now keep your place here where we're studying in case I give you a reference away from it. So it says, in full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ? What is this mystery that Paul is talking about? It's really the mystery that the Gentiles as well as the Jews, the Gentiles also should be fellow heirs of the gospel. In other words, this mystery, Paul refers to it in Ephesians. You turn back to Ephesians. Let me give it to you in the third chapter of Ephesians. Paul says in verse 3, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Paul says it was revealed to me, this mystery that he is talking about, of God the Father and of Christ. And what is it all about? That uh, 
As I wrote unto you in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, it was not revealed in the Old Testament, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now here it is stated in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. He says, this is the mystery that has been hidden through the age. And was now made, is now made known to the apostles, the Holy Spirit teaching them that God's will and purpose uh, for the uh, death of Christ on the cross was in order to provide not only for the salvation of his own chosen people, but for the Gentiles also, for, for the sins of the whole world, we'll put it that way. Paul says this was the mystery. Now back in Colossians where we're teaching. So in verse uh, 3 he says, To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father and of Christ. Now notice that when you come to the end of verse 2 there, you have uh, Colossians 2 verse 2. When you come to the end of verse 2, notice it's not the completion of the statement, is it? And of Christ in whom, just connect the last of verse 2 with verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ himself is like a mine of wealth. The treasures are hidden in him of all wisdom and knowledge. What we're trying to say is that the great plan of God's salvation, the great wisdom of God in providing a plan of salvation for man is hidden in Christ. His purpose is to reveal that plan and to reveal the salvation that is in himself by redemption through his uh, shed blood on the cross of Calvary. In other words, uh, what I'm trying to say is that there's no greater wisdom, or there's no greater treasure than to find that in the wisdom of God, He has provided for our salvation. We think of the wisdom of God in, in devising such a plan of salvation. We sing a song at Calvary, Oh, the, oh, the grace that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did stand at Calvary. See, in the death of Christ on Calvary, God was fulfilling his purpose and plan. And in his wisdom, he had sent his son to die on the cross in order that people might be saved by receiving Jesus by faith. Isn't that a wonderful plan? Man has tried to devise certain ideas or plans or philosophies of how other men can reach heaven or be saved. But God has the only plan whereby a soul must be saved. The Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That means it narrows down to Christ is the one and only mediator. His plan of salvation is the only plan of salvation. Some people say, well, preacher, you're very dogmatic. I'm not. God's Word is. God's Word says that Christ is the only way of salvation. God's Word says that it's only by the shed blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's Hebrews 9, I believe it's verse, uh, verse 22. Almost all things are by the law, first with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Now then, Let's think of this now. So in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To know 
that this is true, to understand the Word of God and to know that God's Word is very knowledgeable to us or that we can know the plan of salvation and the way of salvation through Christ. And then in verse 4, and by the way, before we leave verse 3, all of the things that are spiritual of spiritual value are hidden in Christ and are, and are made rich treasure when we search out those hidden treasures in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible says, He has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that we search out all the spiritual things. And if we want to find out spiritual blessings, we look to Christ and we find them out through Him. Alright, let's look at verse 4 now. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. The word here, Paul is sounding a warning. He says, I'm saying all these things about the mystery of God and about the love that you're to have one for another that, and about the plan of salvation in Jesus Christ and the wisdom and knowledge of God in Christ. I'm saying this so that when someone would try to beguile you with enticing words or to deceive you by their own arguments, you know, the Jews, well, especially the Greeks of that day were very argumentative. They would argue about anything. And they tried to win uh, the case by argument. We have, we have people that are no different today. They will argue on spiritual things of which they do not, uh, or something related to life through Christ and the eternal life hereafter. And they'll argue on a basis not grounded in the Word of God, but just for the sake of argument. Have you ever seen people's well? Listen, now you know it stands to reason, this or that or the other, and they'll start arguing from a human standpoint. I don't mind discussing something with you about the Word of God if we will use the Word of God to, as the final proof. But if you're going to use a human argument or something that you've learned in the world to try to contradict the Word of God, I'll have nothing to do with it. Because God's Word uh, is complete, and we find that if we'll stick within its rule and practice, we'll go the right way. And Paul says, This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. In other words, deceive with smooth words. Uh, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and steadfastness of your faith in, of your faith in Christ. Look at that. Paul says, I'm absent. But he says, I have heard about what you do. I know your order. He knew what they stood for and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He knew that they were standing fast, that they had their faith in the Lord and they would not be moved. It's good for us to be established in the faith. He'll deal with that. Look at the next, next verse. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Paul is establishing some some wonderful things here for us as Christians. First of all, he's saying, did you receive Christ by faith? If you have, walk by faith. Did you receive him as a free gift? As you have received. What do you receive? You receive a gift, do you not? You take it to yourself. You receive Christ by faith. Uh, the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And that means you have the right or the privilege to call yourself a child of God if you've received Christ. That is your privilege to do so. You belong 
even as many as believe on his name. So if you have received Christ by faith, he then gave you power. And the word means the actual power and right and privilege to be called child of God, even to them that believe on his name. Simply as that. And you receive him as a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. As you have received, therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Who have you received? Christ, the anointed, the promised Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. Jesus is the Savior, the word that means Savior. You've seen the promised one that God sent as Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. You've received him as indeed Lord or God manifest in the flesh. To receive Christ is to receive him as the Bible teaches him to be. You not only receive him by faith, but who is the one that you receive? The one who is the promised one of old, that God has said, I'm going to send the anointed. To the Jews, it would be their promised Messiah, wouldn't it? You and I, it's the anointed one who had pre-existent deity. Christ did not have his beginning when he was born of Mary and laid in a manger. The Bible says, if you read Micah chapter 5, look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In the Old Testament, I could quote it to you, but let me read it for you. Micah 5, verse 2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee, now listen, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Now, this babe that was to be born, Micah prophesied of the place of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, right? Hello. Whose goings forth, the one that's laid in that manger, he's been going forth, had been from of old, from everlasting. The pre-existent deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, God manifest in the flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, back in Colossians now, chapter 2, verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. You received him by faith, so walk ye in him. Walk by faith, live by faith. Walk actively, walk perseveringly. Walk is a matter of habit. You know, our lives are made up of habits. We get in the habit of you get in the habit of going into the bathroom of mowing you men and you shave at a certain time. Or you do that before you take a shower, maybe. I don't know how you do it. But anyway, however, you get in the habit of doing certain things. You get in the habit of eating certain times. You get in the habit of putting your shoes on one way and your socks on one way. And and people do things by force of habit. Let's get in the habit of walking as Christ would have us walk. And then it'll just be a natural thing in our life to try to live by prayer, to try to live by faith, to walk by faith, uh, to do everything as we should by force of habit, if those habits are right. Now then, if we've got the wrong kind of habits, we have to break them. Some people have to break bad habits, and they're hard to break. But if you get set into the right habits of life, you'll do the right thing. And then continue, continue and progressively walk as he would have you to walk. Look at verse 7. Rooted and built up in him. Look what Paul uses here. Rooted and built up. Why would he talk about being rooted and then talk about being built? He uses two symbols here. You plant a seed 
You plant a tree and you hope it takes deep root, don't you? You want it to be rooted and the roots to spread out and into the earth and get a good stance so the wind won't uh, make it go over to one side so it can withstand the storm, so it will grow, so it will reach down and get the moisture. So it's rooted. Uh, Paul tells us that we need to be rooted in the things of God. And also he says, and built up. He's talking about being built on a foundation. So he not only uses the plant, but he uses the building. Built up in him. Established in the faith. And established in the faith. Or established, if you want to put it that way. In other words, have a good foundation to rest upon. So he uses both. I want you to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. Oh, 19 would be better to start there. Ephesians 2.19. We're talking about being built up. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built. Now here he's talking about being built. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Who is the chief cornerstone? Christ. Now look. In whom all the building fitly framed, you have this knit together again. In other words, joined in the right way, as you would a building. Fitly framed together, goeth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That's what the church is all about, isn't it? To be built together, so knit together, and so built up a habitation or a temple of God in the Lord, so that it's an habitation of God through the Spirit. We want, you know, the Bible tells us that the church is the, is the temple of God. Paul says to the Corinthians, ye are the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And then he says, your body individually is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what are we talking about? As a church collectively here as we're assembled together, the presence of God is in us or in our midst as a congregation, but he's also in our midst because he's personally and individually indwelling each one of us. So not only is your body a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the church. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I dwell in the midst of that church. That was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through uh, 20, 20 or 2, in case you need it. All right, now back in Colossians. Always hold your place where we're teaching. And look at this now. In verse uh, 7, it says, And established in the faith as ye have been taught. Now, we, we have to, if we are going to be rooted and built up, notice how these things are so vitally connected. If you're going to be rooted and built up, you're going to be established in the faith, you must have been taught. See? As you have been taught. You couldn't be rooted and built up unless you had been taught. That's how you're established in the faith. You're taught the doctrines of grace. And so, unless you're taught these, you cannot be established in the faith. You cannot be rooted or grounded and built up. So it's very necessary to be taught the Word of God. And it says, abounding therein with thanksgiving. How thankful are we for such a relationship to Christ and such a foundation as we are to build upon and such a rooting and grounding as we have as a tree that's planted. Let me give you something. Look in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Verse 3 is the real point, but I want to read the other two. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, 
nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now look, here's the verse. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That's rooted, isn't it? That bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Look at that. A man, a godly man, a man that is planted as a tree by the rivers of water. He receives his moisture from that river, which is Christ. He receives refreshing. He's rooted because he's planted. He's not like a wild tree growing out here somewhere and it's uh, curved around an, an old stump or a log somewhere. Have you ever seen a tree start to grow and it'll hit an old dead log and it'll start this way and that way, end up and it'll finally look like it's growing down instead of up? But a tree that's planted has the proper space, has plenty of soil, has plenty of moisture, and he's planted by the rivers of water. That's what the Christian is to be. That's what we need to be. Now let's look at something else. Back in Colossians, and hold your place there. It says, uh, abounding therein with thanksgiving. That's verse 7. Okay, let's look at verse 8 now. Beware. Colossians 2, verse 8. Always hold your place where we're studying. It says, beware. You know, if you see a sign that says, beware. Uh, a dog, uh, a biting dog. Beware of the dog. Boy, you want to stay away from that case. There have been more postmen run off by bad dogs. I'm telling you, and you go to visit someone, they got a bad dog or a biting dog, you better make sure somebody comes to the gate or the door and gets that dog and uh, takes care of you. Uh, so it says, beware. When we see a sign, beware, sometimes we, we really look and are careful, aren't we? Well, when we see it in God's Word, we ought to be just as careful about spiritual matters. In other words, Paul is saying, look here, beware, be afraid to be carried off in this way. Now look, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Spoil you. Spoil what you have. We've already stated the things you have. Taking spoil of you. You know what they uh, do when they take the spoil? It's, they come and they win the battle. They, they conquer you and then they take everything that you have. Paul says they can. there's some that can do this in a spiritual way. There's some that will come in and rob you of these things that we've been talking about. We've already been talking about some good things that we have, have in Christ. Rooted and built up. Salvation in Christ. Uh, knowing the mystery of God is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, partakers of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith. But he says, beware, someone can come along and try to make fall of you in these things. And how will they do it? Through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments or elements of the world, and not after Christ. You see, they'll try to use other means to pull you away from the truth that is in Jesus Christ. You better know what you believe about Jesus. You better know where you stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. You better know what he's done for you. You better know truly that he has saved you by his sacrificial, atoning death on the cross. He became your sin bearer and your substitute. You better know that he has promised that if you call upon him, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's his promise to you. And if you will do that, he's going to save you. Someone comes along, tries to disturb that and spoil you of those things that you know to be true, they're going to do you harm. And there are many that are doing that, how? Through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. 
after the elements of the world and not after Christ. Now then, in verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ. In him. All the fullness of the Godhead. He is God, but he has taken upon himself human form. He is God manifest in the flesh. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, actually, in reality. Let's put it that way. Now then, Paul is about to refer to Old Testament types and shadows. Those types and shadows were not the actual and real thing. Now follow me in this. This is very important. Let me try to get your attention. In the Old Testament, there were types and shadows of Christ, which was done. And they all pointed to, to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, if you take some of the, for instance, the Passover lamb. Passover lamb that the Jews uh, sacrificed. It was a symbol of Christ, the Lamb of God. So he really did come. But that was only a shadow. It was a type. It was actually a lamb that was slain, but it was picturesque. It pointed to, and it foreshadowed the coming of the Christ, who is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. But now when we get to this verse, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in all reality, in all truth, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ. Now, I realize I'm trying to give you a lot of things at one time, and Sometimes I try to do that too much, but it's so important. I want you to get it. All of the love of God is found in Christ. All of the holiness of God. All of the righteousness of God. We find the, the uh, sinlessness, the uh, perfection of God, uh, the complete uh, revelation of God to man can be seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that... Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, let me read it for you. John chapter 1. Sometimes I could quote this to you, but I think it does better if I'll just give it to you. Let me read verse 18. It says, No man has seen God at any time. Now listen. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. When it says he hath declared him, it means that the Son hath told him out. He has revealed God the Father to us. If you want to know how God loves, look at Christ's love. If you want to know how the Father has compassion, look at Christ's compassion. If you want to know God in His holiness, look at the person of Christ. He said, which of you convinceth me of sin? Satan couldn't convince him of sin. He did not fall to Satan's temptations. He was perfectly sinless. In him was no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. So, all the things of God are revealed in Christ. Now, back in Colossians, it says in verse 10, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Ye are complete in him. There's nothing lacking. In him everything is provided for our salvation, for life, and for eternity. So that there is a completeness. There's nothing that you need for life now, spiritual life now, for uh Eternal life in the future that is not found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's provided for it all. Isn't that a great thing? You say, well, can I help provide for it? No, you're complete in Him. He has provided everything that's necessary for our salvation, for our good, and for our glory with Him. Now then, which is the head of all principality and power. 
in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What's he talking about? We're not circumcised in the flesh, so to speak, but in the heart, through Christ's death. A separation that is made by Christ putting away the body of our sins. And it's a, that God has done something for us through Christ in separating us from our past sins. Now look in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. So, uh, being buried in the waters of baptism, we immerse people in the water. Baptism by immersion, because it pictures a burial. And just as you're immersed in the water and come up out of the water, so Christ was buried in the grave, in the tomb, and came up out of the tomb. And if he came up out of the tomb in resurrection, when we come up out of the water as a Christian, we're then to walk in a new life, in a Christ life, as a Christian. And that's identification with him who was buried. And so we, in in ordinance, are buried with him in baptism, but it really takes place inside of us, look at verse 12, through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, just as God raised Christ from the dead, so he has he raised up us into a spiritual life, and that baptism is a symbol and a picture of what he's already done in our heart. You follow that? In other words, if you're spiritually resurrected, if you've been saved, you're already spiritually resurrected with Christ. And that baptism pictures what has taken place. And so you're raised through, you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. See that in verse 12? And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you. Now here's the blessings of such a relationship. He's forgiven you of all trespasses. He's blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to uh, his cross. That is the uh, law in the sense of all of its ordinances that were under the old economy. And he says he's done away with those and nailed them to his cross, and now you're saved by grace through faith, and you've walked with Christ in a new life. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In other words, in Christ's death, he became victor over all that would be against us having salvation through his uh, substitutionary work and sacrifice. Isn't that a wonderful thing? All of this is done through Christ's death. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to an holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath day. Which are shadow, he says these things were shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. These were shadows, but the body is Christ. Focus upon Jesus. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he had not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. In other words, try to get you to uh, humiliate yourself or to put yourself in a place of voluntary humility. To try to make your, uh, well, what should I say, self-affliction, self-affliction. In other words, you might say, here's a fellow that wants me to afflict my soul and to afflict myself or to, to just uh, pray constantly without any break and any time to eat. Certain fastings they would put on you. 
for so many days. And you must do this. You're going to be holy. And he says, let no man beguile you of your reward in causing you to do these things. To cause you to have a sense of superior piety by doing such a thing. And worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he had not seen. Mainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. In other words, just because he thought that this would make you more holy, he starts laying upon you all of these requirements. You must do this and you must do that if you're going to be holy. If you're going to be holy, follow God's word. If you're going to be holy, pray that God will order you and direct you in his word. Pray that God will give you grace day by day. Pray that God will make you what you need to be. That you'll follow his uh, word and his leadership and his Holy Spirit. And be submissive to him and be obedient to him. And walk by faith and not by sight. If you want to be holy, do those things. Because God has given you the direction. Now, I realize I've got you a few minutes here. Time to close, but I want to close this, if you will. So, instead of doing this that we read in verse 18, it says, And not holding the head, the only Savior. In other words, not holding Christ forth. Doing the opposite of that. And not holding the head. We should hold Christ as the head. He is the only Savior. He is the chief. He is the head of all things. From which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together, you have that knit together again, increaseth with the increase of God. Therefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, if he's delivered you from such elements of the world, if he's delivered you from the law and its types and shadows and its ordinances and made you free to serve him, if he's done that, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Now look, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the use after the commandments and doctrines of men. You know, man can put more rules and regulations on than you, than you ever heard. Churches can do that. Don't do this and don't do that and don't do something else. You see, all these limitations and all these requirements, Jesus has made you free to serve him. And the Bible says we're not under law, but we're under grace. And Paul says, what shall I say then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? He says, God forbid. We certainly wouldn't deliberately sin because we're delivered from the uh, condemnation of the law. So follow this teaching now. There are some that would cause you to uh, say, well, you cannot touch this. You cannot taste this. You cannot have that. Paul says all things of this life are to perish with the using. And these are after the commandments and doctrines of men. And drop on down to verse 23 now for our last verse. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom. They make a great show. That's not, taste not, handle not. Observe this, observe that, observe something else. Do this, light this candle, go through this motion, or try to go through this religious ceremony or ritual. That's what Paul is putting down. You don't have to light any candles. You don't have to go through some religious focus focus. You don't have to go through some ritualistic service. Paul says you don't have these things anymore. They were a shadow in certain ways in the Old Testament, which finally, uh, by the days of Jesus, they had so corrupted that they were hardly recognizable. But on the other hand, they were shadows that God ordained in the Old Testament as he originally gave them. But here, people will try to make uh, to do this as an outward show. He says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom 
in will worship and humility. Will worship. What is will worship? Do it as you think you ought to do. Just uh, decide that this would be a good way to do it. Someone will come along and say, this is the way we ought to do it. Another one will come along, this is the way we ought to worship God. And it all comes from your own imagination instead of taking God's word as to what we're to do. See? Let me give you an example. Look back in the book of Leviticus. I'll just keep you a minute. I won't keep you too long. Just a minute or two. Bear with me. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, I want to show you something of what God thinks of just doing things just any old way. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they were priests, the sons of Aaron, priestly family, and these were the two special ones ministering at that time, took either of them his censer, now look, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. See what that says? That's trying to worship God in a way that God has not commanded. That's simply all it says. God didn't say to do it. Now look. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord has spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh to me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. These were Aaron's two sons. I'm sure he loved them dearly in the flesh. And yet God says, they worship with a strange fire. In other words, what they were saying, that we'll just worship God any way we want to. God has put us here, and we can do it any way we want to. God says, not so. He says, you do it my way. Strange fire was a fire that God did not command. And it's a type of religious practices not based on the Word of God. And I could give you a whole sermon on that, which I will not because time would fail. But I will say this. it is. A type of religious services that's not based upon the Word of God. So don't think that you can just go to one church or another and say, well, however they worship, it's all right. It's not all right if God didn't designate it to be that way. And God's Word says, which things, back in reading our last verse, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. In other words, a worship which a, uh, a man chooses for himself and it's not revealed in the Word of God. And you have people that do that. But who do we hold? We're to hold the head of the body, which is Christ. We're to look to Christ. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead body. It says you're complete in Him. Walk in Him as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in so Tonight, in putting it in simple words as I would know how I say it. First of all, let's realize that in Jesus Christ is salvation for the soul of any repentant, believing sinner. And there's not only salvation, but direction in life. And this Christ that we're looking to is one who was not only born of Mary a virgin, but is indeed God manifest in the flesh, who was sinless, who died a substitutionary death on the cross, made an atoning sacrifice for our sins, made atonement for us, and uh, was buried in Joseph's new tomb, rose again from the grave the third day. He ascended back to the right hand of God. And right now he is seated there as the one and only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is our advocate with the Father, John says. Paul says he's our great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. 